0: The Incomparable, number 448, February 2019. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. This is another special episode of The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. And if you don't remember, uh, one of our most prolific panelists of all time, our most prolific panelist, in fact, of all time, Dan Morin posted uh, or posted they don't post books they publish books he had his novel published in 2017 and we did a special episode where we talked about it right when the novel came out and i thought hey dan's novel's coming out march 5th from angry robot it's called the bayern agenda why don't we have dan back on another special episode to talk about his new book and that's what this episode is hi dan hi jason all right it's it's nice to be back Nice to be back on the Incomparable Well, you were yeah, just on, I, but now yeah. you're back on I'm your here. book tour. here, book tour episode. Yes, yes to yes, talk this about. Is it- virtual book tour. So you and I talked about uh, The Caledonian Gambit and uh, Anthony Johnston and I talked about the process of, you know, him having his work adapted into a movie with Atomic Blonde. And I I, I think it's kind of fun when we've got people who are in the family like this and are going through this, uh, this process of putting a a work out into the world to talk a little bit um, about not the work itself, but like the, well, we'll talk about it a little bit, but like the process of mm-hmm. of making it and and bringing it to fruition, and we also have a bunch of, uh, of questions from people who sent in questions, but we'll get to later. But um, why don't you tell me? Let's start with the, the the top line here, which is what is the Bayern agenda uh, specifically? No, what, what happens at the end? No, uh, <laughs> right.
1: yeah, let's let's work. But backwards. What's the book? What's
0: the what is uh, what's the idea? Big picture, almost like your elevator pitch and then i'll ask you if you actually had to do a pitch and if it was in an elevator but what is the bayern
1: <laughs> agenda uh the bayern agenda is a sci-fi espionage thriller it's a uh, mission impossible by way of john le Carre set on a bank the size of a planet uh, with some intrigue between these two superpowers and it basically involves a covert oper- uh, operations team investigating some uh, illicit connections between their rival superpower and and this sort of data haven slash financial center. Uh, and it's it's all about trying to stop that Cold War from turning into a shooting war.
0: So if I were to make an analog to history, I would say that this would be like a, a Cold War spy novel told in a neutral financial center like uh switzerland maybe something like that sure, would be yeah. would that be an analog that would that'd be a pretty good analog, to put it in, the, in like john Locke terms yes exactly in the vernacular all right all right so um the big question and i think a lot of people have asked this um and, and that definitely there's some confusion about this and maybe we can talk about the history of it a little bit but why don't we just embrace it now this is a book that is being um marketed as the beginning of the galactic cold war series and a lot of people have said well wait is it the sequel to the caledonian gambit is it connected what's going on there and there are reasons why it's a little confusing (laughs) but could you clear up a little bit what the connection between your previous novel which was from a different publisher that was
1: from talos this is from angry robot um what is the connection between the two books So, the connection between these books uh, is that they are set in the same universe, and they do follow largely the same characters. Uh, Sequentially, like, chronologically, this takes place after the Caledonian Gambit, the events of the Caledonian Gambit. Um, Okay, so, so, hold on. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the same characters in the same
0: universe takes place sequentially with the previous Hmm. book. Fascinating. Yeah. But it,
1: we should there should be a word for that. But don't call it a sequel is what yeah. you're saying. Thank you, LL Cool J. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, there's always some challenges with this. And some of this is a semantic issue more than anything. Um, this is something that I, I feel that you don't. First of all, you don't need to have read The Caledonian Gambit in order to read The Bayern Agenda and kind of get what's going on. That's not to say that you might not get some more uh, insight to some of the things and some of the characters if you have read The Caledonian Gambit. Uh, That might flesh out some of your understanding or provide some nuance. Um, But I think the Bayern Agenda stands on its own as a story and as sort of a launching point uh, for a, a new series. And so it's not like, you know, the Caledonian game ended on a terrible cliffhanger and this is the resolution to it, right? Like, you know, there is a, there is a certain amount of standalone nature to it. Um, and so for me, you know, obviously, as we, we talked about, these are different publishers. And so that's a big part of why, you know, we're, we're viewing this sort of as the kickoff to a new series. Uh, it's, you know, obviously, you don't, <laughs> not a lot of publishers go out there and publish the second book uh, in a series right. when the first book was from a different publisher. Right. So there are some practicalities involved with so that.
0: So the idea here is that you don't need to have read The Caledonian Gambit, although you should have, because what's wrong with you? Yeah, uh, but if on. you haven't um you can you can dive right in with these guys and it allows your publisher to not be in the difficult position of saying uh we're we're doing we're gonna launch a second book in a series uh where the first book is by somebody else yeah so they can exactly. just say start here and you so did you did you we 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 should we should back up so you did change publishers yeah um you had a single book deal with talos and um and you ended up going with Angry Robot. Um and is it is it known is this a is, a, is this a multi book deal, Dan?
1: Uh I think I can safely say that there is another book. Uh, in the offing okay but i i won't say anything else All about right. it at present but yeah, yeah this, this could we'll be say, one of those we'll podcasts
0: where the the questioner obviously knows more than he's actually going to say <laughs> and asks leading questions and lets you deny and the or confirm
1: also knows more than he's yeah supposed to that, say. that's right but you actually know what you're supposed
0: to talk about but my my, my point here is um you ended up changing publishers and i imagine that there was just a lot that went into that leaving aside the nitty-gritty details of you know, why you needed to change publishers and how how the negotiations went and all that stuff, because that's really none of our business. But um, it obviously led to uh, changes in what you were doing, because mm-hmm. I don't know how far along, if you had a manuscript for, for book two... Um, before, in fact, I'm pretty sure you did because I think I read it before you, you, you changed do. publishers. In fact,
1: in fact, you do know this. Yes, yes you did so read it before. I'm, not, yeah. I'm
0: a liar now. I have made myself a liar. It's terrible. No, the idea. So, so you had a manuscript, and yeah, you yeah. changed publishers, and you've got this new publishers like we don't want this to be, you know, a sequel where you have to have read the first book, and right. and and then we're endlessly endlessly publishing the second book in a series is not that great. So, <laughs> what work did you have to do on the story? Um, predicated by the fact that you wanted this to be a yeah. launching point for the Galactic well, Cold War at Angry Robot.
1: We'll back up a little bit because, you know, essentially the thing here was um, tell, all right, let's, just to like go into a, a little bit, not too nitty gritty, right. but like there's always an option. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of publishing contracts have an option on sequel books. So a lot of contracts will say like, oh, you know, if we want, if this does well and we want another book, we kind of reserve the right to ask you for that, uh, and, and like you know, basically write a first refusal. Sure. Essentially,
0: last thing you um, want to do is put up money for a book and have it be a hit, exactly. and then not be able to benefit from having put yeah. up the money
1: in the first place yeah. got it yeah so it, there's no uh, obviously no secret in that talos decided they did not want a second book now you are totally right that i wrote this book in fact i wrote this book before even the caledonian gambit was sold i wrote these books kind of back to back and that's mm. something that you know there's a luxury of doing that when you are somebody who is not a professional writer and that you're like you write whatever you want right like there's no there's no bounds on trying to figure out like oh should i write this or not but like you know it's from the vantage point of where i am now i probably wouldn't have done the same thing because of that very fact that if you you go ahead and say like oh man i love that first book i'm gonna turn around and i write the next book immediately and you get into a situation where you never sell the first book for example uh then you're left with a second book which might be a lot harder to sell right so uh, what happened was I, I had written both of these books. We sold the Caldeon Gamut. We hoped to sell the Bayern Agenda. Uh, both of these books, by the way, had totally different titles. Oh, yeah. Many different points. Um, and uh, fortunately, uh, my agent had read the manuscript for the Bayern Agenda. And he, because I was, you know prepping to in case talos wanted a second book right i had basically gone in and like all right i'm going to polish this up because i had already written it and i sent it to my agent to get his feedback because he and i work a lot in editorial matters and he liked it and when talos decided not to go ahead with a second book he felt like you know i think this is strong enough on its own that with some tweaks to the story we could shop it around essentially uh, and with that Angry Robot decided to, to buy it and, you know, clearly were excited enough about it as its own entry point that they didn't feel like it felt, you mm. know, as much like a book too. So in terms of what I had to do to get it adapted, I mean, a lot of it, I would say a lot of what I changed was character stuff because you can't count on people having read the first book. Therefore, you need to lay a little more groundwork into who these characters are Uh, And, and, you know, a certain degree of that, these books had always been designed, or at least the first books I had in mind for this series have been designed to be kind of standalone, like episodic, right? Like, you can go pick up a, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a popular uh, uh, mystery writer, for example. Like, you can can go pick up, like, uh, a Jack Reacher book, right? And, like, it doesn't really matter where it is in the series, probably. There might be some things that you don't know about this character, but it's kind of self-contained. You can kind of get the idea, like, just picking up a book in this series. And so I kind of always designed it with that angle of, like, all right, there, there are some, like, continuing adventures of. And you might, again, get a little more out of it if you've read stuff involving these characters. But you can kind of figure out you know who they are just by jumping in. So a lot of the groundwork was done for me in that way. But there's definitely stuff that builds on events that had happened in the earlier book, uh, which I felt like needed to be sort of dialed back a little bit and and just sort of either explained in some cases or just sort of ditched in other places, Mm. because it's like I don't want I don't want the baggage of having to maintain like uh, this nuanced, uh, you know, bit of character development for something that. A lot of people might not have read. Um, plot wise, I will say there is much less because of the plot. So much of the plot was intended to be self-contained from the beginning. Um, there are a few things here and there that kind of allude to events that have happened before, and you always want to try to build out that, that little arc in in the background too, right? Like you know, you watch TV shows, for example, and you've got the plots that happen every week. But a lot of even on episode, episodic shows, you have situations where You want to, like, develop, tease character developments Mm -hmm. as you go along. You also want to have a
0: lived-in world where, where you know, there's something unreal about a collection of characters who've literally had nothing happen to them until the moment that you meet them, right? Right. They presumably have had experiences in their lives that are alluded to. I always like that. I like that. Like a modern Doctor Who has really leaned into that idea that yes. all the showrunners have these things where they mention something we've never seen or the, the episode starts with them having just concluded some spectacular yes. adventure that's off screen. And I, I like that idea that we just are, are viewing a, a portion of, of, of these people's story and that there's all sorts of things like this universe is enormous and lots of stuff has happened in, in it historically and, and you know you don't get to know all of it yet
1: right yeah and, and that's important in this kind of book too because you know building out this whole world where there's this ongoing conflict and we have these characters who are you know especially well-trained right like they're specific, they have these specific skills they do this job that is very critical uh and they're good at what they do obviously you don't have situations where it's like oh well let's just leave them on the bench for for six months or a year or whatever right like these people are obviously going out and doing things constantly they're on operations they are on missions and stuff like that so you do want that feeling right like same thing you said it's not like when the camera turns to you all of a sudden it's like you're on you know and, right. and then when it pans away it's like all right i'm gonna sit back and have my coffee and <laughs> etc like I, I you do want to feel like you're kind of getting a, a slice of what they're up to uh, and that you still sort of see it going off into the distance. Like, oh, they did these things. They There are these other threads that they might get into. But yeah, you got you to build that fully fleshed out world. So in terms of building the world, since this is the second book in
0: this universe, how much, and I think we had some questions in our little question list that were similar to this, the idea that um, you're building there's world building going on here you are building a scenario in which your books are set and that means that you have constructed um how this universe works and who the players are and not all of that is necessarily reflected in uh in what's specifically in the book Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you need to have the kind of like the space in which in which to play so i'm curious you know is this something where you set the rules of the universe and build it just sort of as you go along making things (laughs) up as you go or do you put some effort into thinking about big picture stuff which is basically doing work on the world which is different than writing the words of the book if that makes sense the idea of how much world building do you do going in how do you tweak that along the way because you're set up here to write multiple books in this world and you know theoretically if you were to write a third book in this universe you would probably want to play by the rules of the first two and right. not be hemmed in by rules yeah. you set up in the first two
1: yeah so that i mean am i a just-in-time compiler is that what you're asking oh, interesting uh, <laughs> that's how I, I understood yeah. that reference yeah that was for that was for our, Computer people. Uh, our, tech, our tech people yeah um a little of both. I spent a long time planning the whole layout of the universe before I'd even really gotten into the Caledonian Gambit. Um, and so, and some of that stuff's going to change, right? Because you have plot necessities. Uh, and as you go, you're like, nah, no, this thing isn't relevant. Or this thing, um, I want to change that because I'm going to use something different at this point. I need something that fills that. So I do a little bit of both because I, I do have like sort of a large. Uh, sketched out idea of, like you said, who the players are and what the universe is. And it's tricky because if you are too adherent to the things that you created perhaps a long time ago, it does hem you in and it does prevent you from having uh, situations where uh, you need something that can't fit. So, I mean, best example for me would be uh, essentially places like i had a map that i made you know uh, years ago now uh, of sort of the galaxy and its layout and it's a fairly small universe and that 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 raises problems because sometimes you need a a location that doesn't fit with any of the locations that you've either previously described or that you've even mapped out you might say like i need a planet that is not in, under the sway of either of these governments But geographically needs to be accessible in such a way that it can be located here or hereabouts. And it's like that that can be hard. And so I've had to, like, tweak some stuff as I go along sometimes, because what's nice is, as you said, because you build out all this world building stuff. Not all of that goes in the novel, right? Like you don't just like info dump everything that you've written your whole like Wikipedia or whatever for this universe. And so I might know stuff in my head that I think like, oh, well, you know, that's this place or that's this person. But nobody else knows that because it's still in my head or in my private documents. So if I need to change something because it fits better, if it's different than what I had originally imagined, I'm free to do that. Ah, because it's not, it, it's
0: not put down in the canon yet. It's just sort exactly. of in, in your working draft of canon. Um, exactly. But you didn't, as long as you can remember that it
1: wasn't actually put in one of the first <laughs> right. two novels. That, that, I see why George R. 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 Martin has like an assistant with a database. Yeah, I mean, even, and even two books in, like, you know, uh, I, there are things that. I don't remember. <laughs> like it's funny how good my memory is, and how many people's memories are for things in other people's work. Mm-hmm. That is is not as good for stuff that you yourself have oh, created. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, because I, you're I don't know creating, why that is.
0: creating is you're not re- reading and rereading. Um, you're writing yeah. and editing, and it's a different. I, I I've been editing this book that I wrote, you know, whatever five eight years ago, and I um as I'm doing the rewrite of it, I keep f- coming on things where I'm like, oh. Uh, that's clever. Like, I have no memory of it at all. <laughs> or I find myself doing a, a rewrite insertion, and then I go down three paragraphs, and I go, God, I already wrote that. Yeah, like, yeah. eight years ago, I already oh, well. did it. Um, so I, I, it's, I think your brain works differently. But do you have a... You mentioned some documents. I know that there are people who have... I mentioned George R. R. Martin's writing assistant with a database. I know people have done, like, little wikis or Voodoo Pad or things like that, where they've actually, like, built for their own use a little kind of, like, reference of terms and and you know, in your case, like planets and things like that, do you have uh,
1: something more formal or have you thought about doing that just to keep your story straight? <laughs> I did once upon a time have a voodoo pad document that had a bunch of this stuff, and it was tragically one of my few cases of data loss. I actually wrote a Macworld piece about this. Oh, yeah, it was a long that, time that was ago. what that
0: was. I forgot what was. was that, oh, boy. Yeah,
1: one of them was, it was your a, a, iCloud sort of, uh, in your files, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a Bible, like a little, you know, it didn't have everything in it, but I was starting, like, oh, this is a great place for me to write all this down. And I lost my data. I was like, well, no, never mind. Um, it's in a couple different places. Um, I do have a map that I built using um I think scapel, right? Is that that's um that's another literature in latte one, mm-hmm. I think. Um it's so like just like a sort of a brainstorming app. And I was like, oh I can use this to make kind of a map of the universe. And so I did that. Uh I also have some files. Uh Scrivener, which is my novel writing tool of choice, lets you create you know, you can have like ancillary materials in addition to your manuscript. And so the actually the Caledonian Gambit manuscript has a bunch of files at the end that have a whole bunch of extra stuff like bios for some of the characters Mm. a timeline that was the thing that got me the most like i needed a timeline for some stuff um to figure out when things happened how old characters were where they were from what were the events that happened historically like there is a whole i do have a whole historical list of things that happened in this universe most of which have not been mentioned like in either of these books but like i need to know because i need to know where wh- I need to know what the history of these things are because it informs not only the characters, but the, the political situation of the world. Um, and so, yeah, I, I sort of store those in a hodgepodge of places. I do have some notes files uh, in just notes on my computer that I store stuff in. Um, I You know, I, it's one of those things where it's like, I'd like a, uh, I probably need to do something more structured at some point that's more like a wiki or some sort of other document that lets me keep track of people and places and all this junk. Right, I mean, wikis
0: um, are super easy to, do like yeah one of the things like voodoo pad might be an answer or something like that but like i when we were doing um like fake made up stuff for an april fool's wiki one year for the tv website um i i it struck me like oh my god this is actually really great i should have like a local wiki somewhere where i can just connect my own documents because there's something to be said for um for doing that like it's it's a really easy system and then you've Mm -hmm. actually got something um where you can keep since you aren't yet at the point where you're doing a uh, writing assistant having a Yeah writing or assistant or program.
1: or I haven't yet mobilized a fan base to create the fan wiki. <laughs> oh yeah, well that's true too. But then you can't I don't know if you can trust that I can't that. Put, Plus, the stuff. Yeah, put the unpublished and then you want to put the
0: real yeah, the unpublished stuff in there for sure. Yeah, so that that definitely that is
1: definitely oh, a tricky situation. Here is
0: the um here is the app that I wanted to um mention which is you could talk about calendars and timelines and i was going to say that when i wrote my the first novel i wrote uh takes uh, also unpublished because i am an unpublished novelist dan i don't know if you knew that about me
1: i do know i that am about
0: very you. much unpublished but the first novel I've, i wrote, I've read several of your books though um the one with the kids who have superpowers takes place over it, it's a very compressed timeline it takes place over about a week and a half mm-hmm. and i realized after i wrote the first draft of it that i had no idea i was totally faking it i was like oh that mm-hmm. was two days mm-hmm. ago or remember what happened yesterday and the characters would say and i'd be like i don't know what it was i haven't kept track <laughs> and one of the things i did before i did my um second draft was sit down with the manuscript <laughs> and the calendar app or i think it was ical at that point because this was a long time ago and I, I like went through and marked down the days mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so that i could make and, and, and it turns out it was an eight-day week. <laughs> <Yeah>. I had <laughs> I had cheated, and I had to rejigger in the rewrite. I had to get the timeline right uh, because it is it is important, and somebody will
1: call you on it. They'll be like, "But that's not oh, how." Oh yeah, right. I mean, I, I in the book I'm working on right now, uh, there is a whole time-sensitive uh, incident towards the end of the book. I will I'll say there is a heist that uh-huh. involves in this book. Now a heist. You kind of need to have your timelines mm-hmm. right, and so as I was going through in a re-edit, I was reading. Um, there are several points where the main character talks about like, oh, the clock, you know, where's the clock, and the times like, oh, there's only this much time left on the clock. It was all over the place. It yeah. was like it went from like two hours to twenty minutes to forty minutes to an hour, and I was like, oh, what? yeah, you can yeah, That that's that's can't. a problem. So, that's a serious problem.
0: Um, and our friend Anthony Johnston, who I mentioned earlier, um, boy, that guy. He is, a, a, let's say, an organized writer. <laughs> organized,
1: organized writer. Yeah, that's a good description.
0: Um, and he recommends an app I had never heard of, but actually, it turns out is in Set So I actually was able to try it out uh, because I have a
1: Set App account. Um, is, this, is this Eon Timeline? Eon Timeline. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I tried to use it once way back in my early one. I think it was a little clunky back in like you know this is yeah like maybe ten years ago but probably. But <laughs> that's that's what aeon
0: timeline does and it it actually was built by people who use scrivener Mm -hmm. and wanted to do like timeline tracking and if you've got a whole like fictional history or where plot timing is crucial as he says in in uh his graphic novel Cold the city and in his novel the exphoria code like he has timeline issues and rather than have sheets of paper tape together and attached to a wall or whatever he uses um eon timeline so there's there's tools out
1: there which is i, it's, I think it's, it's pretty literally cool. in, it's literally installed on my computer yeah. i just opened it because i was like oh do i have i do have this yeah i have many i have version 1.0.6 <laughs> lots lots of old.
0: lots of writing tools out there ultimately so i mean I, I guess we can talk about the tools a little bit um because i know people want to know about that uh you mentioned scrivener is is scrivener mm-hmm. basically where everything is living these days for you
1: Yes, with the exception of Notes app. The omnipresent, can't oh, quite yeah. get rid of it Notes app. Uh, it's just so useful to, like, have a place that has, like, when I am editing or when I am just walking around and I have an idea for something, it's the oh, easiest yeah. place to jot stuff down. Uh, and so I have I have a whole folder. Oh, man, the folder situation. Sorry, that's a whole gripe where it's like the folders on iOS and on uh, 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 macOS don't quite line up. You can mm-hmm. do stuff on, you can, like you can subfolder stuff in macOS, which you can't do in iOS. Anyways, I have a writing folder of notes. And then within that, I have separate folders for like different stories or universes. Oh, interesting. So I have a whole Galactic Cold War folder that has, you know, probably 20 notes in it. And some of them are things like, you know, I'll talk to my agent, and he'll be giving me comments, and I'll be writing them down in a note. Or I get comments from someone like A beta reader like you or uh, my fiance, and I'll like kind of distill the notes into that Uh, and then I'll just have notes where it's like oh I I need to do this thing or this is something I picked up while I was reading this draft like I need to I need to address this and it's just it's so centralized and easy that it really is the best place for me to keep overarching notes about things Um, but other than that the manuscript lives entirely in Scrivener uh, basically until it has to go out in another form um, whether that be a, a you know a PDF for a ebook for a reader or a Word doc for an editor, like yeah, basically everything lives in Scrivener because it's just it's the way my brain thinks. Yeah, that makes sense. See,
0: I have so I have a copy of this book from 2016. <laughs> it looks like
1: okay. So all right, that's fairly. Re- I, I will say that's probably, probably not the r- first version I got. <laughs> it was probably written in 2010. 2011, mm. somewhere in there. Probably probably took me... A book takes me a year-ish. Um, and so it was probably mainly written in 2010, 2011. Um, and... Yeah, 2016 probably, is when I've got the... Uh, I think I sent you that after you had read... Because that was pretty close to the ba- uh, to uh, Caldonian Gambit getting released. Oh, uh, yeah. So I was probably giving you like a... Like, oh, yeah, I've been working on the sequel again. And I think I had sent it to you and you're like, you know, it, it just got lost somewhere in the in the mists of time could be could be but here it is yes 2016 for break the bank break the bank which is the original title Mm -hmm. uh an homage to the the song uh i broke the man who broke the bank at monte carlo uh used in lawrence arabia among other places nice
0: tidbit but it is the bayern agenda now after the caledonian gambit so i assume your third book will be the um Banana heist.
1: <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought about that one. No, but that the banana is a heist good title. No, I do. I, I have a. I also had to. I had a title, not a single title that I have originally come up with for any of my books has ever made it to publication. Yeah, <laughs> fun fact about yep. writing books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that that all of the titles. I should say first choice titles, right? Like, I, I still came up with all the titles for the books, but they were not the title, the working titles. Right. And a lot of times it was like, people will say, either my agent or a publisher will be like, "Yeah, I don't think this quite works. Uh, just give me, you know, a list. And so somewhere I have like a list of like a dozen titles that right. I came up for the Caledonian, what eventually became the Caledonian Gambit. Um, and my agent at the time just picked the one that he liked the best. And that's kind of what we ran he with. Likes he likes that, uh you know, series of spy novels all with the same structure thing which i think there's something yeah, to, to, to that, that right? sure i mean talk to uh, anthony and the x code right like it's it's got a yep. it's got a a cadence to it that i think is is something people find comforting right yeah. you know I, I always joke about them being robert Ludlum titles because i think he is kind of the right the 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 king of that sort of thing <laughs> right sure yeah there's the born identity right He has a ton of them that are all kind of the something, something, right? Like, I think that is basically 90% of his books. But I mean, you know, popular books, the Da Vinci Code, you know, like you got a lot of stuff that kind of falls into that pattern because it's pretty, it's a pretty common pattern. um, And certainly for spy books, I think it it works well. So was this book, um, you had written a bunch of stuff that was not
0: published, the sort of like famous you write a bunch of books and throw them away, yeah. and then you eventually write a book that is your first novel, but it's not the first one you wrote. Was it easier having having written that? I know you wrote it before it was published. You wrote this one, but was it easier writing this one, having created the world and having a bunch of novel manuscripts under your belt to do this? Or was it more difficult
1: or the same? I felt like this one was easier in a lot of ways um but i will say kind of with the asterisk on that not being published at the time it gives you a lot of freedom in terms of how you think about it right like if you're working on something and there's no deadline or no expectation of when you have to turn that thing in and you're like i've got as much time as i want to work on this like that there's a certain amount of freedom to that uh and then having written stuff before as you said you start to sort of get the hang of it I, i do think You know, I stand by that old... I think I heard it from Neil Gaiman, but Neil Gaiman, I think, says it's a Gene Wolfe quote, which is, you never learn how to write a novel, you only learn how to write the novel you're working on right now. Um, And I think that's true, because they're all different beasts. So I will say, like, you know, I've got a couple works in progress right now, and... I struggle definitely with both of those, including the one that I'm most recently working on. Like I, you sit there going, like I've written, I've, I've now written like five books. <laughs> why can't? Why is this one not working? Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, some of it is feeling like I, you do learn skills, but some of it's also that each subsequent book you want to do better, right? So you push yourself maybe a little bit more in terms of structuring or in terms of um, who you're your pov characters are or the the complications and the plot you're trying to tell right like you want to do something a little more sophisticated uh and so i think that you kind of your difficulty your degree of difficulty ramps up as you go as well and there's expectations too right like you've published a book you don't want there's the dreaded sophomore slump right like oh, oh yeah. they're they spent so long working on their first thing and then they had to like quickly do a second thing <laughs> and it's not as good right like people worry about that i i think i'm i get the benefit there because and my second thing was done before my first thing even hit the world. No, so, so technically the third book will be your sophomore slump. Yeah, trust me, I'm working <laughs> on that now, and it's <laughs> it is definitely trust. When you also have a deadline, it's like this is under contract and needs to be turned in at such a such time, and that does that's not different. help. <laughs> yeah, it's a little different. Uh, different. It's one thing to to write articles on deadlines where it's like, nah, 800 words, you can crank that out in a couple hours. uh It's hard to do that with 100,000 words. Yeah. Like that's that's a tough oh, thing to to pull tough, off. Tough. T- t- to crank that out. Well, I think there's
0: definitely truth both in my professional life and in doing nanorimo for a bunch of years. The you know, there's so much mystification of the writing process where people are mm-hmm. like, "Oh, the magic, the muse comes down," and I'll never write like that. And they see finished, you see finished books, and you're like, "Oh, they, I can never be a writer like this because look at how they've built this intricate, intricate puzzle box." And the truth is, of course, that it was garbage, and then got very, <laughs> uh, with a lot of work, it got turned into something that looks like an intricate
1: uh, puzzle box. You, you also get very dissociated from it as it goes on, like you know, picking up the paperback copy of the Baron agenda, which is like right in front of me, like it's harder. It's it's I feel less like viewing like, oh, this work of art that I have poured out and created than I have like, it does feel like looking at a bunch of words on a page sometimes, yeah. and being like, "I've read this so many times that it's no longer." I, I feel very clinical about it, also, rather than very like emotional.
0: If you built a chair and you know you look at that chair, and everybody else is like, "What a beautiful chair!" and you're like, "Yeah, well, um, I had a problem with this thing, and I had to yep, I had yeah. to patch that, and this thing gave me trouble, and and I had to undo this whole part and redo it, and put in another piece in, and like yeah, that yeah. that's the truth of the. Other, if, if you're other people only see it.
1: the finished product, you see the all the flaws along the way.
0: Right. So my. My point was that there's so much my, uh, mystification that goes on where it's like, oh, the, the exalted writer and all that, when it's actually hard work. I all, yeah. I will say the one thing that seems to have gotten through to a lot of people about writers that does seem like it could be a bunch of hoo-ha, but isn't, is this idea that you need to write every day and that writing is a muscle and that mm-hmm. the more you do it, the um, the easier it comes. And writing isn't a muscle. Writing is a set of pathways in your brain, but beyond that metaphor, it's absolutely true and that goes for whether you are like if you do NaNoWriMo I would argue that by the time you're at day 30 you are much more of able to write much more smoothly theoretically than on day one if you're writing every day because sure, you get yeah. in you get in that way and I was thinking about you and I talk about this you know writing columns and, and blog posts and stuff every week and like every now and then I have that moment of of a realization that like um i am i have gotten really good at doing that because i've been doing it for a long time sure, but yeah. for somebody else it could be like oh i gotta write like my kids writing essays and they're like i yep, can't even yes. i struggle to write two sentences Three and i'm pages, like yeah. i go to starbucks and i i, I <laughs> type out 1200 words and send it in and get paid like
1: and i don't even think about it but that's because yeah. i've been doing it a long time and that's I, the truth I, of it I think there's a caveat to that, which I will say is, uh, especially my experience working on the stuff I'm working on now, um, you know, a lot of people like uh, talk about writing every day. And I think that that's that's great if you can do it. It doesn't work for everybody. Sure. Um, And I will also say like, I think it's also important to take breaks from and and spend time not writing because there's a lot of time where you feel like, uh, like you get stuck on something and you stare at your page and you're like oh, trying yeah. to like bang your head at it and just be like oh god what is this is not working something is broken i can't quite figure out what it is and you can try to brute force it but i think in some ways especially for people who like me uh, you know struggle sometimes with feeling like uh i'm not very good at this this is terrible why is everything so bad like you can just it's it spirals right like the more yep. you sit is like sit there and it's not working the more upset you get and the more frustrated you get so sometimes the best thing you can do is walk away, walk away. because your subconscious for, for sure is so much better at that and it's true with i mean to continue the workout metaphor that's true too right like if you work out every day your muscles are just going to be like totally overtaxed like you need to if you do like actual exercise regimens like you have rest days yeah so that your body can recuperate and and i think that writing is like that too there are some times where it's like take a break go do something else get out in the world talk to people anything but writing to let the, that part of your brain relax and let that subconscious do some heavy lifting for you. Yeah, and then you'll come
0: back to it later. I, I absolutely agree with that. That's something that I talked to with, um, with David Sparks on Free Agents about a lot, which is mm-hmm. this idea that I needed to, in terms of time management, my biggest thing for time management was literally recognizing when I was, uh, when a problem was intractable. And rather than spend an entire afternoon getting more and more frustrated that I was unable to crack this particular problem, that I could, I just know to walk away and go walk the dog, work on a different project, whatever. Just not this, because that was wasted time. Like if you're spinning your wheels, and again, it's a, it's a fine line because there's it, writing is work, and. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's hard, and if every time you feel like it's ha- you're having a hard time, you walk away, you'll literally yeah. never write something. Right. But you have to find that dividing line, which is yeah. this isn't working. I need to go away and come back to this, and I need to you know do something else right now. That's, and that is the that's best the best
1: writer. That is the hardest and most important writer skill. I think probably to learn is when do you need to sort of punch through something, and when do you need to step away? Yeah, because well, like that, it's hard. I think probably most people, even even like. Professional writers probably don't get it right most of the time oh, yeah.
0: well, right? I, like- I think and you come up with systems like for me it is sort of like okay well, here's what I'm going to try to do I'm going to try to be aware when the wheel starts spinning and then I'm going to let's say give myself another couple of punches, to use your metaphor, and if those don't land, I'm going to walk away. Like, yep. I want to push this, but I don't want to push this too far, because then I right. just... Because I've... I mean, you've certainly experienced this too, I'm assuming, but I've certainly had that thing where I, ha- I have something on my agenda to write uh, uh, something on the a- in the afternoon, and all of a sudden it's like 5.30, and my yep. family's coming home, and I am hungry, and I have done nothing, and my mood is terrible the rest of the day, because I feel like yep. a failure. And what I really wish I had done is at 1.30 in the afternoon said, oh, this is not working. I'm going to walk away for an hour and come back to it. And you really? just, it's its hard to
1: make that judgment.
0: Yep, absolutely. Would you like to answer some questions
1: I from the internet? I would love to answer some questions from the internet. Thanks, internet. All right. So
0: um, Kathy, who may be our friend, Kathy Campbell, I don't know. It just says Kathy here, but it sounds like her kind of, um, asks, how do you balance the writing you do as part of your tech journalism career versus writing for fun, if such a thing can exist versus for (laughs) a book that you're working on.
1: Um, I, so it's interesting too, because we were just talking about writing every day. And I think that's one of the best things that the tech journalism as a career ever did for me was made me write every day. Uh, And so when I was doing that full time, when you and I were at Macworld, like it was a really important like balance life. Like, it was really important to find the balance line um, because I would write work during the weekdays, and then I would get up early on the weekends and I would go write. And occasionally I would write in the evenings too. But most of the time, by the end of the day, the full day of work, you're like, oh god, I'm exhausted. Like, I can't create something right now. My brain is just like running out of fumes. It's been interesting to adapt that to working in the freelance lifestyle. Um, I still try to use the morning to write creative stuff um as our again as as Anthony johnson will say like he he thinks you know getting up in the morning and sort of having a fresh brain is really important i tend to agree with that i'm not quite as good about it i think as he is he's like the eschew social media and like any other concerns until i've like cranked out a few pages and i can't do that yeah because for me i need to like I need to remove the cue. I need to like go through and be like, all right, there's nothing pressing good. I don't feel that hanging over my head. Right. And then I feel clear to go and do some writing, um, for a couple hours. And part of that's born of like, you know, I used to be the when I was on Macworld, I was on the East Coast. So I was the person who got up and it was like if there was news from like Apple or something, it, it was would yours. always be in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so I would I, I have that still in my head where it's like I got to check first. I got to check that nothing ter- like nothing huge has happened that I need to write about, even though it's not quite as pressing these days as it used to be. Um, so I try to write in the morning for a few hours. Uh, and then I usually do my tech journalism stuff in the afternoons because that feels a little like they're different enough in terms of what parts of my brain they use that I feel like it's easier to divide that up and say, like, I'm going to do sort of my my raw creative work in the morning and in the afternoon, I'm going to do some more like analytical or like thoughtful work about this stuff and. Um, and that's tricky too, because it just also does mean a full day of writing, which is why I like breaking up with podcasts when I can, ah. because that uses a totally different part of my brain, right? Um, so, like, getting it's nice. I yeah, I do clockwise, you know, at noon on Wednesdays, and that's a great like sort of uh, point to to break things up. We used to record the rebound at noon on Tuesdays. We currently are not doing that, but I kind of miss it because it was like a good break point to sure. be like writing novel stuff, go home, record a podcast, have lunch get back on the horse and do some some tech stuff um i do less on the weekends too now than i used to which i miss a little bit because it is nice when it's like quiet and the weekend still feels like it's a time when you have no other responsibilities on you and you can get up and it's kind of like i don't have to worry about work i'm off the clock um but you know now that the writing creative stuff is is part of my job (laughs) it's changed the dynamic a little bit um, so trying to balance that is definitely, is still something I'm coming to grips with, you know, almost five years hmm. into this whole freelance writing style.
0: Your colleague, Adam Rakunis wrote in, <laughs> uh, with a question. It's a good one. It's how many unit distances can be determined by a set of end points in the Euclidean plane? Yes. Yeah, seven,
1: I think is okay, the answer. Okay, good. And um, then,
0: and then more seriously, he says, are there any spy novels that pay homage that you pay homage to in this book? And what are your favorite espionage
1: novels? Uh, there are definitely spy uh, books that I pay homage to in this book. Um, I will say that my favorite spy novels include, um, so obviously, you know, you and I, uh, Jason, have talked a lot about the Vorkosigan Saga. I would classify several of those as spy novels, uh, and I think that some of those definitely have an impact in terms of uh, the science fiction spy setting. Um, in terms of straight up spy stuff, I. I think probably a lot of my fascination with it is born out of the early Tom Clancy, like oove. like Hunt for Red October, mm. I think is a great spy novel. Um, if you can sort of classify the entire thing as a spy novel, right? like it's it's kind of that like nitty gritty, very realistic Cold War, like, you know, lots of jargon and stuff like that. But it's it's also incredibly gripping in terms of uh how it plays out. Uh and I would say that there's definitely some influence from that. There's definitely some influence for some of the follow-ups in that. Uh, I will say particularly there's a book uh that comes I think it's right after Hunt for October called The Cardinal of the Kremlin, um, which there is a definite homage to in this book, uh in the Bayern agenda. So uh and then I would say the works so sort of to do a throwback. I mean uh lacare obviously I love Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. It is twisty and delightful. Um, but I would also go back to there's a writer named Eric Ambler um, from the I want to say 30s mainly uh, and he wrote just sort of pulp spy novels and those are a lot of fun like they're usually about somebody uh, who sort of accidentally gets embroiled in a spy plot you know a civilian and has to sort of uh, adapt and figure out this new world There's danger lurks around every corner uh, and so I like that uh, as well I think those are for me kind of the 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 ones to to look up to.
0: And uh listener Paul Paul Weimer wrote in about your
1: essential espionage movie. I so I was thinking about this and I don't know Jason, would you classify Sneakers as a spy movie cuz I would <sighs> I would consider putting yes. it up there. It's it's not yeah, I would say that that's certainly my favorite uh because it has the tone is is just great. Uh it feels Sinister with all these veiled agendas, you don't know who's working for whom. There's some twists like it's not necessarily your classic spy novel or spy movie, but I think it's 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 the one that I think of a lot. I would put some honorable mention there. I think The Hunt for October again is a pretty good spy movie. Um 3 Days of the Condor uh, is also kind of I, I've only seen it once but I really like it, it struck that tone that 1970s spy thriller tone was great. Uh, there was a TV remake of that last year um which I watched which I think was little watched but it was, it was interesting I liked it a lot mm-hmm. I would also say my my top TV spy se- like series on on TV was probably the Sandbaggers yeah. which I know Jason you've now uh, consumed at least some of yep. um I love that as a great show It is not a show that would. I feel like it's not a show that would ever work in modern day tv like people would just find it interminable but it's great it's i love it it's good it's on brit box i think people can get yep. sandbaggers you can actually get it online which is great i had to like buy the dvds at the time because you couldn't get it online like 10 years ago what is your this is a listener kate what is your favorite place to write in
0: boston for those of us who live locally and are toying with the idea the magic are you going to give up your magic zone <laughs> And if you don't have one, what's your preferred space for writing? Talk about your writing spaces and how
1: you choose and what you write where. I tend to... So I go to the coffee shop most mornings, uh, unless the weather is just like terrible outside. Um, And so I go... There's a coffee shop called Forge, which Jason has been to. I have. It's very nice. Uh, It's a very nice coffee shop. It's very close to where I live. Um, So it gets me just enough of that like a short morning Mm -hmm. walk. To sort of uh, clear your head and think about things a little bit and then i get there and i sort of set up with my cup of tea uh and it's got a nice place like a little bar at the back where you can sit and like look into the uh the room where they're like making all the pastries which is nice because sometimes like i get a little antsy if i don't have some sort of window or view into the outside sure. world or something going on like because every once in a while you just need to like stare off into the distance right there's
0: just walls or whatever that gets That's less dull. less interesting yeah, so that's my that's my favorite spot. Okay, but I so do bounce forge, around. dot com, and don't follow Dan
1: home. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but the breakfast <laughs> Say there hi, is good. But I'm probably There's working. Good, good, good,
1: yes, good breakfast. They're, they make there. their own pastries, yeah. which is which is delicious. But there are a bunch of other coffee shops that I've frequented in the area, uh, including I think most of Bayer and Agenda was written probably at. Um, I don't know if they renamed it. It used to be called Block 11. I think it may just be Block now, but it's owned by the same people who own Forge. Hmm. Uh, and that's down in Union Square in Somerville. And they also own Diesel Cafe, which Jason will remember I used to spend a lot of time working out of when I was <laughs> working at Macworld and a freelancer, uh, which is down in Davis Square. Uh, yeah, so there's lots of good coffee shops. I like that because it it helps to get out to have something, uh, people around. I find that helpful. It's weird. It's like the weird counterintuitive thing where it's like, Because there's more distractions, I need to focus more. Yep. Whereas at home, it's just like, oh, there's nothing. It's so quiet. Like, I just get, like, I go out of my head a little bit sometimes. Like, if I'm at home, I need to put music on, because otherwise, I'm just not productive.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. I I agree with you. I have a weird one, Um, and I go write my column now. I I sort of follow the Dan lifestyle a little bit. and. i uh i write i try to write my column first i had a starbucks that was within walking distance and i got that mm-hmm. kind of like i get to take a little walk and then they shut it down so i can't go there anymore mm-hmm. but i do i will go to a cafe usually a, like a starbucks that's nearby because i live in the burbs and there isn't a good cafe that's not um actually there are a couple of good cafes in downtown mill valley and they are completely full of people because they're it's like super hipstery and it's like i, ca- I can't all work those, there all those people are working on their novels too. yeah they probably are um but I, I, for the same reason that you do, I find it valuable because it, first off, it it gets me out of the house; it's a change of sh- scenery. Second, uh, this counterintuitive thing about like, well. Um, if it's noisy and busy, I kind of have to focus. And the third thing is, like, if you make a thing of it, now I can't just sort of drift through the afternoon looking yeah, at web pages. Right. Like, I made a point of going out. I need to yep. do some work now. Why, otherwise,
1: why am I here? Right. Right. Why am I here spending money and exactly. taking all this time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is nice to give you that that hook to sort of peg things onto.
0: Yeah, so I think that's powerful. And, and, and Kate, yes, if you see Dan, if you see a guy, well, it is Somerville, Massachusetts. So if you see a guy in a Red Sox hat, it might not be Dan that's true it probably isn't but in it might the be dan writing uh at the at the at ideally at the front table at forge but i like the front table tasty. but it's
1: it's worse in the winter because then the cold air comes in oh yeah so that's i, I tend to retreat to the back in the winter right. but in the summer i like being up front it's nice it's pretty nice uh speaking of of cafes uh jim hart asks what's your favorite kind of tea ah my favorite kind of tea i am a black tea person uh i will say I tend to bounce around a little bit and try a bunch of different ones. Um, when I go out, it's usually like an English breakfast tea because you can kind of reliably count on that being a thing. Um, but I have a bunch right now that I bought from our friends at the uh, New Mexico Tico, uh, and I'm I'm sort of a classist. I do really I, I love I love uh, Scottish breakfast uh, is one of my favorites. I think. Of the breakfast teas, there's something about that particular type, maybe because I used to live in Scotland, that I just really appeals to me. Um, but I just had this um, version from uh, New Mexico Tico that's called a sweet Souchong, huh. which is it's 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 weird but delicious. It's like it's like a smoky sweet like tea, and it, it's almost got like a it's like it's like a barbecue sauce or something that sounds weird that sounds weird when you put it that way but like lapsang souchong is very very smoky like that is aggressively smoky and this has sort of a sweet maltiness to it that is is uh i just unusual it's not like anything else that i have tasted so I, I like i like that quite a bit i'm still working my way through that but there's a i have a bunch of different teas from I,
0: I just ordered uh some of the Kenyan
1: lelsa which you recommended uh, yeah I love that too. Them. It's become my daily my daily drinking tea. I just buy big bags of that because I know that it's very uh it's just it's good. It's solid. It's a good well, solid black tea. This is not a commercial announcement, but they are sponsoring the T V,
0: uh, the Star Trek Discovery Flashcast this season. So if you go to nmtcode.com slash TV, you will get uh not only a link to like a survey that we're doing that's a silly Star Trek survey, but you don't have to fill it out. There's a code that you can put in uh, and you'll save some money so if you do
1: want Plus, to try out some, dance some of your tea bags may uh, arrive with a uh, cool star, star trek, trek labels on them art on them yeah it could be yeah it
0: could be um There's, it could be uh sauce wrote in sauce speaking of barbecue sauce this is probably not barbecue <laughs> sauce itself sentient
1: barbecue yes. sauce has, wrote a in to say,
0: has playing dungeons and dragons influenced your writing or has writing influenced your dungeons and
1: dragons yes okay no, moving on uh no um I think it tends to be a large give and take there. Like there's a lot to learn in D and D about, especially like character arcs and stuff. I think that's like a really interesting thing. Like definitely being a writer has influenced how I like view my character arcs when I'm playing some campaigns. Like I, I tend to get these really like cinematic ideas from them. Like, Oh yes. Then this character, when they reach this level, they will like achieve this. And then that will like sort of spin out into this new conundrum. They have, um, I've definitely done that with characters in the past, uh, and I think d and d writing you know conversely, like what's great about d and d very much unlike writing is that d and d is collaborative. Uh I would not say writing isn't collaborative or can't be collaborative, but d and d has got that delightful those delightful moments when somebody else in your party or your dungeon master throws that curveball that you did not expect and you have to adapt to it. and I love that because it makes you think on your feet. Uh, it knocks you out of your, your routines or whatever you had planned. Uh, and I think it's it's really illustrative to see how, like, other people handle problem solving. So it helps you get out of a rut, too, right? Like, if you are just in your own head and writing stuff all the time, I think a lot of times you can sort of fall back on the same ideas or the same tropes or whatever. And it's and is great for, like, knocking you out of that and helping you sort of... Uh, turbocharge your writing a little bit because it's like oh well that's the great thing happened and it's not like i'm gonna copy what happened in that campaign but like wasn't it cool when this totally unexpected thing happened and made the characters have to react in this like way that was just not something i would have ever thought about so i I love the collaborative aspect of that so i think that's a big help in terms of uh freeing your mind a little bit in terms of how you approach things
0: yeah we talk about um d and d a lot and people I think who are not involved have not done role playing games would be like what what are you talking about but it is collaborative storytelling you could call it improv storytelling like that i think that's part of the appeal is that you've got a group of people together who are kind of like telling their own stories but they're also participating in the telling of a larger story and that will go off as you said in unexpected directions i think that's part of the appeal of like a a a tv writer's room kind of thing where in most of those what they do is people are throwing around ideas and bouncing off of each other in the writer's room and at some point a writer goes away and then writes on their own and and i think that's a nice combination of like using l- letting the other people kind of like open up pathways you might not have considered but also being able to go away and kind of make your own thing um it's an interesting yeah. combination i i find that sometimes where i uh am beating my head against something in terms of uh writing something fiction wise and then we'll be in you know we'll be playing dnd and then the ideas are coming fast and furious and it's like oh right other people are yeah,
1: right like it's, that's so nice I, I it's one of the things i do miss about being a writer is it's very solitary most of the time so
0: i'm i'm ready for the call for the um galactic cold war writers room where we literally just <laughs> spend two hours throwing out stupid ideas that then you take away and ignore
1: so just get me on that call <laughs> <laughs> All right. Duly noted. Okay. When they when they when they spin up the TV show eventually. Oh, someday. excellent, <laughs> excellent. I'll come in for that. <laughs> That's not an announcement. There is no, no, TV, no TV show. show. Um, That's me joking around. Okay. Uh, David
0: at Ragsdale wrote in and said, how do you handle it when you're writing a scene or character and things start to go in a direction that feels really good, but it doesn't match the direction you intended for the plot. How much leeway do we leeway? Do you give yourself to let the characters go where they want when
1: it's messing up your plans as the writer, uh, characters, they're the worst. Um, as someone who up until fairly recently kind of wrote by the seat of their pants, um, that was kind of those are the great moments right like those are the moments where it's like you don't have to sit around wondering like oh god what am i going to write next it's like your character's like oh we have an idea we're doing this thing and it's like cool what is that what's going to happen um so i like i liked that a lot more recently i've had to sort of outline things and think more in advance about how i'm going to do things uh and I will still kind of let the characters spin out their own thing just to see where it goes a lot of times because sometimes you might change the plot based on what your characters do. Um sometimes you might axe that entire scene though. It's like sometimes you'll just throw it out and be like, "Yeah, that didn't work at all. That makes no sense. Um uh, it's good, but I can't keep it because it doesn't work." Mm. So, I try to give some leeway, but it's one of those things where, you know, even after you've let that uh, take its course it may be something that never sees the light of day yeah.
0: i appreciate the initiative character yeah thanks, but i'm guys. the boss here
1: <laughs> yeah sorry
0: sorry you're fired um our friend tony Sindelar wants to know if you have any easter eggs in character names that we should look for any easter eggs in general too that you have planted
1: that you could uh you could i will tease say, or share with us um yeah i there are definitely some easter eggs in names in this one um I will say there are at least, if you can qualify them as Easter eggs, if you read the Bayern Agenda and you go back and read the Caledonian Gambit afterwards, you might notice some things that are hinted at, like in the Caledonian Gambit, that show up in the Bayern Agenda. Uh, I don't know if anybody has caught those yet, but uh, because even like the early readers, I'm not sure, like, they're throwaway lines that, like, uh become more relevant after the bayern agenda so i'll say that uh as far as other easter eggs there are definitely a few i can think of one in the book i'm writing right now but that doesn't help anybody no. uh there are definitely things uh that i probably either homages like quotes and stuff like that that are homages to other works or um uh there's definitely some stuff in there that is also like attempt set at subtle setting up stuff for the future too like that's not quite an easter egg but like i guess it depends on whether i ever get to pay him off or not so dan 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 is there a banker named tony Sindelar or not <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna i'm not gonna lie i would have to go back and search the manuscript because sometimes when i'm like writing and i like i just need a name uh i will pick something and just be like yeah that'll do And a lot of times I've definitely used other like actual people's names for that sort of thing. Uh, But then I forget that I Mm. (laughs) did. It's fair. Um,
0: Anne just wants to know what's the most uh, fun D&D character you've played and why? And also,
1: did they die? Because that seems to happen (laughs) with you. Uh, My most my my favorite D&D character of all time, probably is a character named Lucius Fallingstar Star which was in a dark sun campaign run by our friend tony Sindelar. uh he was a tiefling bard and he became i he was definitely i think my my, my most favorite character in the sense that what happened to him felt so epic and yes it involved him dying <laughs> is this it, uh, but he died did he get the hat did, is this the one where he got the magic yes, hat yes he had the magic crown uh that we have seen in our dark sun campaign and he went increasingly crazy hearing these whispers And at one point, he died while he was wearing the crown. And and Tony even was like, I don't know what's going to happen with that. Let me think about it. And so he kind of disappeared. And I sort of made a new character to accompany our party. And then um, a while after that, to the point where, not that I had forgotten about him exactly, but like we had moved on a fair ways. He appeared as the villain, (laughs) like a reincarnated version of him, like appeared as the villain and that was just like a crazy epic thing to have happen uh when you're when you're like oh, my old character and so i spent a long time like you know we went through some plot and eventually like i managed to reclaim him but he uh he lost an arm in mm-hmm. the process which was unfortunate because he was a loot player which is definitely gonna make his life a lot harder <laughs> yeah. uh but yeah i like i like that guy a lot I've, I've played a bunch of different characters i really enjoy i once in a in a non-dnd group called seventh C, which is sort of a swashbuckling game i played a swordsman named jean renard who is a a drunk friend. And man, who was just delightful most of the time
0: uh antonio wants to know if you have any plans about worldcon in dublin
1: this year i do i'm going i'll be there uh, i don't know what i will be doing if anything in terms of programming but i will be around uh, i will be available to sign books if people want or just say hi all that stuff so yeah you can catch me there excellent and um phil would like to know why the hat (laughs) uh i mean practical reasons at first which was when i first started losing my hair i was very i was very young and it was like that's not not the best thing when you're kind of in your 20s and and so i started wearing a hat a lot uh and then it continued to be practical which is keep keeps sun off my head uh as for why it's a red sox hat i don't know i don't i don't go much for like like clever or cutesy hats i guess it just seems like it's a thing that that i can wear uh around boston without anybody remarking on it and it's fairly comfortable at least the, the past ones i've had they've kind of changed the model which gets something the, the hat is not the original hat either no. which is the thing that people ask because there's been like four or five uh because they do wear out uh but i will say i have been incredible numbers of places in the world where the hat automatically gets people to start talking to you like i was in mexico back in november and like there, are people uh these vendors at uh, chichen itza where we went they're all these vendors trying to sell things and they you know immediately seize upon that like ah boston world champions hey i want to buy some of this i'm like no i'm good thank you so yeah it's a conversation starter that's why that's i'm sure that is that is why also <laughs> uh
0: what's under the hat now is your head but is mostly my head not yes. really so much the hair but just the head just the head that's fine that's 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 good it's it's boston dan it's part of your uh trademark at this point.
1: <laughs> oh eric fisher will be delighted you'll have to pay him something for uh, that now
0: yeah no we're gonna make boston dan a thing
1: oh dear god even
0: though it's somerville dan so it doesn't anyway uh anything that you have not uh been asked by me or the listeners that you would like to uh say before we oh, wrap this up man um the bayern agenda I mean, is available where books are sold yeah, i mean published I, well, by it angry is, robot
1: yeah. Yeah, that 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 is the most important thing. I will say, uh, and this is something I've made uh, comments about online, but I will I will stress it. Uh, if, if writers live and, and die by their book sales, like that's just the way it is. That is the business, and it is somewhat arcane at times in terms of like what is the most helpful. People ask me a lot, like, oh, should I buy the book uh, paperback or ebook? Like, what, what's the best thing for you? It it. it I'm not going to say there are no differences, but frankly. It's kind of six of one and a half dozen the other because yes, most writers probably get a better royalty rate from their ebooks, but that's not the only sort of factor at play here. Like a lot of times paperback sales f- like factor a lot into how successful a book is. Uh, and some of that's because the publisher gets a big margin for that and they like to sell lots of copies. So uh, in general, my, my, you know, stance is buy it in whatever form you think you will read it. And that is that is fine but you know buying it is a huge help uh not only does it help me kind of like make a living from doing this but it helps me get future books right like the more books you sell the better a chance that when it comes around to like do we want another book from this guy uh that they will actually buy one so tell your friends Uh, tell your family, tell the FedEx guy, like pretty much anybody who buys this, like it's great. And if you especially like pre-ordering those first week sales, they make a big difference too, because that's kind of the biggest concentration of sales you're going to get. Right. And if you're ever going to make it onto like, you know, a bestseller list or something like that, it's those first week sales, unless oprah later picks on picks up your book and is like i really like this book which is probably not going to happen here probably so, not yes your your purchases are much appreciated and they make a big difference okay so thank you okay. well dan thank you for being
0: here and talking about your writing process and behind the scenes and how this all came together thank you for having me jason it was a delight and thanks to everybody out there for listening to this special bonus episode of the incomparable we will see you sooner than usual with another episode goodbye everybody